lost out on their inheritance of the promised land due to a lack of faith. Um, uh, here the author points out that the rest promised by God is still offered. It's still offered, offered through Christ. Uh, and, the, and the word of God, which is razor sharp, will separate what is truly spiritual from what is faithless. And we should make every effort to obtain our inheritance in Christ. There should be a T there. Um, we can also be confident knowing Jesus uh, can uniquely sympathize with our temptations and sufferings. And so that gets into the end of chapter 4, which is the, the high priest part that Amy will then dig into actively. But I'm, I'm gonna, I just want to read, and perhaps if you can get your Bible and uh, turn to chapter 4 of Hebrews, you can read along. We'll just, we'll just get this text into our heads, and then we'll take it from there. Um, so here's the scripture. Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, quote, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying, through David, after so long a time as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his work, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following through the same example uh, of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that's that's chapter four. That's what we'll be talking about. There's a lot there. Um, uh, but in a nutshell, um, the author of Hebrews uh, is, is saying this. Uh, Dear small, mostly Jewish, Greek-speaking church, don't lose courage as you face persecution. Don't go back to inferior things. Um, Jesus is elevated above them all. That's the castle summary. Jesus is better. He's worth it. It's worth the suffering. Don't go back. We know you're under pressure. We know you're under persecution. Don't let that pressure you into, into giving up what you've got in Jesus. Don't go back. Uh, but in this chapter, 
um, we've got some really deep waters. Um, it, it's certainly about how Jesus is better than Joshua, how he's better than Moses, but also uh, the superiority of the promise is what's talked about. What the, the superiority of the promise of rest in particular and what that means. Um, and it has a parallel to inheriting the land um, and to entering into that rest. So a little bit of context. Um, chapter four uh, follows closely after chapter three. I'm really proud of that sentence. That <laughs> um, and uh, it starts with this quotation in Psalm 95 um, that Claire went through, and I'll just repeat it. So um, in chapter three, the author of Hebrews is quoting David uh, in Psalm 95 saying, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry, angry with this generation, and I said they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so the question is, what happened in the escape from Egypt? Because in this chapter, you, you read through chapter four one or two times, and you realize there it is again. And then you realize, as you, as you uh, look through the Bible, that exodus from Egypt, that, that was, was such a preeminent mark on the people of Israel, and it's such a preeminent mark on our understanding of God and his ways, that we've, we've got to understand what the Lord was doing in terms of pulling people out of Egypt and what he was doing in the wilderness during the two or three years before the spies went into the land and what he did in response to their lack of faith, 10 out of 12 of them, uh, to not being able to go into the land. Um, so in Numbers 14, verses 23 through uh, 24, um, God says this, he goes, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Israel in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned it uh, and spurned me see it. And Deuteronomy, the first chapter in 34, says that uh, Moses is talking to them and, and uh, summarizing what, what happened. He says, you know, the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry uh, with your complaining and with your wishing that you would have been, saying you would have been better off back in Egypt. And he swore an oath, saying, not one of these men of this particular evil generation shall see the good land which I swore to give to their fathers. Um, one of the things that blows me away, blew me away when I first saw it, I'll just share with you, maybe you've seen this before, but one of the big reasons for the rebellion is that they never really trusted. Most of them just never really trusted. And in Stephen, uh, the first martyr, the one who was stoned to death in the book of Acts in chapter 6, <clears throat> 39, Stephen um, has this amazing quote. Remember that he's, he's giving this sermon to the leaders of Israel right before he's stoned to death, right before he calls them um, you know, stubborn and uh, stubborn of heart and unwilling to hear and unwilling to obey the prophets. Right up until that moment, he's giving a pretty thorough, a very thorough history of, of Israel. And in, that, in verse 39, he goes, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Very key phrase there. So, so Stephen is, is, is telling them that look, Jesus has come, but I want to tell you the history that's led up to the coming of this Son of Man, Son of God. And remember that our fathers were constantly in their hearts 
they never really trusted and never really believed in the promises of God. In their hearts, they were turning back to Egypt. In their hearts, they were giving themselves, and in their hearts, they never really bought, bought in to the future promise. And so they said to Aaron, make for us a God who will go before us. For this Moses who has led us out of this land in Egypt, is still Stephen talking, who knows what happened to him. He's doing this by memory, by the way. At that time, they made a calf, and they brought the sacrifice uh, to, an, uh, to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as is written in the prophets. And then he quotes this verse out of Amos, this, this amazing verse. Um, <clears throat> Stephen said, Stephen said, look, the prophets even said, it was not to me that you offered uh, uh, victims and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Lontha and images which you made to worship. And I will also remove you beyond the Babylon, beyond Babylon. The, the stunning thing, and, and it's easy to miss if you don't hang around the book of Amos, but Stephen repeats his book of Amos and says they, in the midst of, of the pillar of fire, in the midst of the column of smoke, in the midst of seeing water come from the rock and manna fall from heaven, in, in the midst of the, of the encounter with God in Sinai, all the signs and wonders, and him filling the tabernacle, tabernacle and Moses' glowing face, and thing after thing after thing, in the midst of that, they have their pocket idols in their, in their saddlebags. In their backpacks, they've got Moloch. They've got they brought Moloch with them. They brought these these other images with them, and so you know, yes, they were constantly turning back to Egypt, and 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 so we understand that this is this is millions of people that Moses is leading through who have by and large this lifestyle, um, and uh, um, I'm not sure I get to this, and so then they come to the point where they uh, are on the brink of the promised land and they are ready to take the challenges. Um, they send, you you know the story, right? They send 12 spies in, 10 of them come back saying there's no way we can beat these people, especially, in parentheses, especially since our heart keeps going back to Egypt. And especially since we have these idols in our saddlebags where we're not exactly sure that the Lord's gonna support us. There's no way we can take on those giants. Only Joshua and Caleb have the alternative view, and it makes God so angry that he says, that generation will not enter my rest. That's, that's what happened in that, that particular case. Uh, parentheses, we had, um, we had a, a cool thing happen today where um, a woman from uh, I have Kansas City who uh, wanted to sit in on our Iran set, the set, the, uh, set during the week on Wednesdays where we intercede for Iran. And uh, so we, we sang through that. That's normally Karen said, but she uh, sang through it. Lucy uh, Boston is her name. She uh, led worship from the piano. And um, uh, um, I'm looking at the screen here. Something's funky going on. But anyway, she led, she led uh, worship from the piano. And Karen uh, uh, sang, and Claire Henze uh, did the prayer. And then at the end, we sat in on a Zoom call with with a bunch of leaders from, from a, a couple of different movements um, that are centered on the Middle East. Um, and Mike Bickle joins in the, in the Zoom call. And so he's, uh, they're asking him to give capsule summaries on what's going on in, you know, in the world, what's happening in, um, 
in the in the Middle East, what's happening in our nation? What uh, do we really think the Lord's going to return? And everything across the board, and what what he said. The reason why this I bring this up here is one of his comments was, you know, it feels like we're swimming against a current that's maybe like a mile an hour, uh, and so and we're you know we're we're getting pushed back a little bit, but we can swim against a current that. Is about a mile an hour, and in fact, we're building up, building up. Those who are who are attempting to swim are building up the muscles to do so. Pretty soon, it's going to be two miles an hour, um, and uh, and pretty soon it'll be three miles an hour. And the counterculture current. He goes right now. You know, it's people don't like us. Don't like Christians. There's there's a uh, there's a stigma, and then sort of a a dislike. Pretty soon, it's going to be out and out hatred and out and out uh, murder and jail time, etc. It'll start to heat up, and if you jump in that current from a zero mile an hour to a four or five mile an hour current, uh, you're not going to be uh, you're not going to be ready. And and uh, that I think of that when I think about the children of Israel going across the wilderness, now being asked to go into the promised land and fight these giants. Now that you've been through this wilderness, let's go take on that five mile an hour current. And they're like, we can't do it. We're not, we're not ready, we're not strong enough, our muscles have not been tested, we have not been exercising, et cetera. The very point that Bickle was making, that, that it's gonna be very difficult uh, if we're not uh, having a lifestyle that's focused on the Lord, if we're not putting away smaller compromises, if we're not zeroed in on, on hundredfold obedience right now, it's gonna be very difficult to jump into that, that lifestyle later. Uh, and so that's what, that's what uh, our friends in the wilderness in Egypt we're doing, and that that is the group that is a subject of Psalm 95. Um, the point is here is that they were uh, a living, walking metaphor of what God wanted to do uh, to a people wholly committed committed to Him. That's what, that's what He wanted in that. That was His intention with the people pulled out of Egypt and walking across the wilderness and ready to engage in the promises that that He had given them. They were to be that metaphor. Um, and not just a metaphor. I mean, they were facing real dangers, real fears, real threats, and they really did feel inadequate. They really did feel un unable. Um, and, but God said, "Look, they saw what I did to rescue them. They saw my faithfulness for 40 years. They criticized my leadership over and over and over again." Verse 39. Uh, and they never bothered. Most of them never bothered to learn my ways, which is a constant theme in David's um, psalms that I just so enjoy uh, singing. In the morning, Lord, show me your ways. Teach me your ways. Um, Psalm 25, for instance. Um, so they will not enter my rest. Uh, you, that you, he, God would say, you know, he may he may be saying, for instance, uh, it's just impossible to enter the kind of rest I have for you unless you trust me completely. Um, and so he would. I think he would say that to us. So. Um, I think I'm still in uh, context. <laughs> um, uh, the value of what we are promised these days, it's, it's been now thousands of years since that time, uh, and the book of Hebrews uh, written now some, you know, uh, some 1,000, 1,900 years since that time. Um, the value is, uh, is uh, given in the context of, uh, of two chapters ago where Karen uh, led us through in chapter two. Chapter 2, verse 5, really interesting, I, I found when, when we were going through that with her. Um, he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning of which we are speaking. Um, he did not subject 
the world to come to angels. The question is, who did he subject the world to come to? If not to angels, then who did it go to? And so we, we uh, take a little walk down through um, verse 5 through 8, um, uh, especially the end of verse 8. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that was not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Three pronouns, right? In my Bible, check out your Bible. I don't, I don't know if it really your, yours is that. In my Bible, is for in subjecting all things to lowercase him, uppercase he left nothing that is not subject to lowercase him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to lowercase him. So, so in other words, putting putting words in there, for in subjecting all things to man, Jesus left nothing that is not subject to man. But now we don't yet see all things that are subject to man. That that's our inheritance. That that's that's all things are subject. You see that verse, and you realize the rest that he's talking about. You realize its junction with with this seventh day rest that uh, of God's creative ability, and you and you realize. Uh, what the term rest means, which we're going to dig into today, it, it becomes one of those hair on, for me, one of those hair on the back of my neck stands up kind of verses that say, oh my goodness, we, we th this rest is more than just leisure. <laughs> this is not just a nap. You know, it, this, is, this is something that is like astounding. All things subject to him. Um, and there is not anything that is not subject to him. But we do see Jesus, who tasted death for everyone, and will bring many sons and daughters uh, to glory. So the things that we don't see uh, that are subject to us, those are the things that are parallel, obviously, with, with the promised land uh, in Israel. Um, we inherit that when we leave behind the slavery that we were, uh, we were into the devil, uh, and when we leave behind the fear of death. Chapter 3, that's chapter 2, right? Chapter 3 talks about how great Jesus is in building the house that we are. And we have this fantastic, amazing inheritance waiting for us. So the cautions in chapter 2 and chapter 3, they arise to encourage us to look forward to the inheritance and to not fall away and don't get discouraged. Um, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, rest. What is this rest? I think it's going to be pretty... Uh, uh, important to understand that term if we want to understand what, what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at here. Um, uh, I was trying to get ready for this study. I went down to um, secondhand books. What's it called? Secondhand books? Book, books played again, books, whatever. The secondhand bookstore in uh, Dublin. And I go to the religious section, I found a commentary on Hebrews by Ironside. And uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's a well, it's well written. Uh, and, as my only commentary from Ironside, I've heard about him. But uh, uh, so here's his quote: um, "The rest that is spoken of in the first 13 verses of chapter four is not our personal enjoyment of Christ, as many imagine, but clearly refers to the rest which, as is Israel's case, was at the end of the way." So that's, that's Ironside's quote. Let's see what he means by that. So I want to I want to have us do a little exercise. Um, what I want to do is, is look up a few verses where that particular term, that particular word, rest, uh, the uh, Strong's 4496, rest, I think they pronounce it, or somebody pronounced it way better than that, I'm sure, um, uh, has, uh, 
so I'm going to um, I'm going to assign one, two, three, four, five verses. Um, so uh, hold on a second. Okay. Um, so uh, so Amy, if you would take uh, Genesis forty nine fifteen. Um, in, oh, in each case, uh, let me just give you the preview. In each case, I'd like you to look at the verse and tell me what, uh, in your own words, that word rest means. In other words, use a synonym for what rest means in that context. And you can look a few verses forward and back. I, I was lazy. I only printed the verse where that word happened to appear. But in one case, I know it's going to be important to look at verses uh, before. And in fact, that one, <laughs> the one I just gave you on this is one where you're going to need to look at a couple of verses before and a couple of verses after. 49.15 for Amy. Um, uh, Karen, if you would do uh, Ruth 1.9. <coughs> um, let's see, anybody anybody not want to do this? Because I had more, I had fewer verses than people. Well, I, I can give you a couple. Actually, Len and Diane, if you guys would also look at, um, you know, Len and Diane, if you would look at uh, 132, uh, Psalm 132, shoot, I think it's verse 14. I didn't write the verse down. I'm pretty sure it's verse 14. It's the one that says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell because I've desired it. Um, and then uh, uh, Linda, if you would do 1 Chronicles 22.9 and Giselle and Connie, if you would do 1 Chronicles uh, 28.2. And so, uh, again, take a look at the verse. I'll give you, you know, 45 seconds or so. <laughs> take a look at the verse, write down the meaning and a synonym for that word. What we want to do is we want to understand sort of the full-bodied sense of rest. This is not the all the places where this particular word appears, 44.96, but it's a couple of key places that uh, I think will provide some interesting Dialogue. So go ahead and take a look at those, and, and we'll uh, we'll join with you in about forty-five seconds. Genesis 49, verse 15. Okay. 
So the context is Jacob's last words to his sons. So he's he's talking about each of his sons. Um, verse 14, um, he says, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. So um, I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds like Issachar got the land in between maybe two other lands and was, um, I don't know, at rest. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I think that was, I, I did these in biblical order, rough biblical order. I might have, had I thought about it, I might have put that one last because it is, it is a weird verse. It helps to know, it helped me to know, when I first read that I thought, what an insult. He's a, he's a donkey of a man and he, and he gives himself to slavery. Um, Um, but when you realize that in that culture, being a donkey is a, I mean, that was their, that was uh, a highly esteemed animal. I mean, you, you, that was how you got things done. And, um, and for him to be uh, 14 and 15, um, uh, a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds, uh, and bearing burdens, he puts his shoulder to the burden and becomes a slave at forced labor. Uh, when he saw that the resting place was good, when he saw the resting place was good, he applied himself to forced labor. Um, I don't know, does that help at all? <laughs> I'm not sure. What, what I uh, was getting at out of that, or what I saw out of that was once I realized that it was not an insult, when I, saw it, when I thought it was an insult, I immediately blew, blew it off and put it in the pile of verses I didn't want to deal with. <clears throat> but, um, but when you realize, it sounds to me like the kind of person who uh, decides this rest is good, 49.15, when he saw that the resting place was good, I am going to bear this burden, I am going to put myself into forced labor, and I am going to march the march and walk the walk until I get to that resting place. It sounds like somebody who puts their nose to the grindstone, Issachar does, and when you realize, um, you look at the sons of Issachar throughout history, they're the ones, of course, who were, you know, who tested things, you know, they were, they were, uh, they were aware, they were, what do you call it, uh, they knew this, they knew the signs of the times, uh, mm -hmm. the sons of Issachar did. So, um, so anyway, it, uh, it, it captures a person who, once they realize the rest is good, um, they, they do those things that are required of them in order to enter into that rest. And so that, I don't know what synonym I would choose for that word either, but that was, that was the gist of it. Um, uh, Karen, what, what do you think about Ruth 1-9? Karen's gonna come to my... Hi, y'all. Okay, so this is in context of um, Naomi with her two daughter-in-laws. Um, as Naomi is leaving after her husband's died and they're cleaving to her, and they, they decide to go with her. And she tells them, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. 
and then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Well, first off, their husbands were dead too. So I had to think about that for a sec. But she was saying, uh, if you go on and read, she's saying, you know, I'm too old to have more sons. So, like, don't you be waiting for a husband from me. It's okay for you to go back and marry. Um, don't refrain from marrying. So it seems to me that the rest that she's talking about is finding a place um, of intimate relationship with a husband, being provided for and loved and belonging and fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is what came to me. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, really good. We'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, Len, what about, uh, Len, Diane, what about Psalm 132? Okay, uh, Linda, what about First uh, Chronicles 22.9? Referring to um, a uh, to peace, in other words, uh, 
Very good, yeah, perfect. Okay, oops. Very good, perfect, thank you. Um, uh, just right, okay, and then uh, Giselle and Connie, um, maybe uh, start with, with Connie on uh, First Chronicles. <laughs> I just realized you guys can't collaborate very well. <laughs> so for First Chronicles 28 too. Uh, Connie first. Chapter 28, verse 65. This is going to be this is going to be the opposite of rest. So, so we'll we just had five examples of a positive direction of rest. Now we want to talk about what anti-rest looks like. Okay. You want me to read it now? Sure. Yeah, you can just interpret on the fly. Is it how's how is it now? Soft. Still soft? Okay.
Right, and so this this is the same word um, for rest that uh, <clears throat> that is used in the in the Psalm ninety five passage, and that's used in the Numbers passage. Um, and what you just read was the was the anti example of what rest, uh, what what non rest looks like. And so some of the key characteristics: um, no, uh, your your feet are always moving; you're constantly in motion. Um, you're uh, trembling heart, failing eyes, despair of soul. It goes on to say in verse 66, your life will be in doubt before you. You'll always be wondering where your life is about. You'll be in dread night and day and have no, no assurance of your life. In the morning you'll say, would that it would be evening. In the evening you'll say, would that it would be morning. In the dread of your heart, um, and you'll have dread in your heart. So that that's that's uh, that helps us to flesh out what non-rest looks like. But I, anybody want to take a stab to try and summarize what the four or five example verses uh, uh, give us for what the positive view of rest looks like? And, um, I just think that the phrase desire fulfilled. Desire fulfilled. So Karen says that one phrase is desire fulfilled. Very good. Inner contentment, uh, yeah, really good as well. Uh, stability, a place of stability. Like the, the Ark of the Covenant is going to come to rest in a house. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that, that Ark of the Covenant, and I think, that, I think that's right. I think all those things are involved um, in the definition, and, and, and what's not involved in the definition, there's other words for rest that are used, for example, in Moses when his arms got tired and he had to lower them down to get a rest, it's a different Hebrew word uh, for, for rest and, and a different Hebrew word for, uh, for a complete absence of conflict um, uh, around them. But, but I, uh, in your notes, you'll see a Strong's definition there that, that again, just really um, impacted me in its simplicity. Um, it's, it's consolation, uh, specifically in matrimony, and, and it's uh, an abode. And so you see the abode part in the, in the resting place for the ark um, and finding um, a, uh, um, uh, where was the other one here? Um, well, yeah, house of rest for ark. Um, but also um, the matrimony, the verse that, that Karen read about Ruth going back, and I, I like the way you, you put that, um, uh, finding a husband, intimacy, etc. To, to view rest from that perspective, of, uh, in, from our perspective, an abode with God, matrimony with God, being, being united in intimacy with God, it, it is, a, is a, and yes, of course, it, it includes desires fulfilled and, and contentment and stability, but, but they're in those contexts of being so linked up with God that that is a desirable thing to the degree that what the author of Hebrews is saying, in my opinion, is nothing compares to that. Put aside all those things. I know you're suffering, dear church. They're not worth comparing to, to what this intimacy, this matrimony, this abode 
with the living God uh, means. And, and, and the opposite is true when you taste of that and then you, uh, you leave that behind, like, like some of the Israelites did as, as, our, as our own bad example. We, we fall into the verses that Claire was reading about being fitful and schizophrenic and not being able to keep a thought together and, and not, not being able to even sit down because we constantly feel like we have to be in motion and we keep wondering, oh my gosh, I can't wait till I go to bed tonight and I can't wait till I wake up in the morning and oh, I wish this day was over kind of thing. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very full body definition and um, um, uh, that, that I guess, that's what it was for me worth the price of admission. Um, the Lord says, come to me all you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Um, um, you know, that, that's the, that's what he's talking about. Um, so the promise um, is that we can enter that rest. Uh, he, Jesus says he is that ultimate rest. Um, and in fact, um, one of the commentators I saw, real apropos for the season we're in, said that Jesus was hung, hung on the cross on Good Friday. He was placed in the tomb on the Sabbath day. He rested on the Sabbath uh, before he was raised in power, and raised in power into that eternal seventh day for him. Um, uh, we don't we don't work our way into it. That would be uh, you know finding finding a way to actually strive to enter into that rest. Striving meaning you know we're gonna we're gonna work twice as hard as the next guy to try and get into that rest uh, is is stumbling over the stumbling stone. We we trip over that stumbling stone that Hebrews nine talks about, <clears throat> where we um, think that we can earn our way into it. Um, we exercise instead by trusting in him, by believing in him, and by waiting on him. Um, so the question for, for me, this whole, this whole chapter, in my view, uh, uh, stands on that story of the, ten spy, the 12 spies, and the 10 that were disobedient, the two that were obedient. So the question is, what, what was different? All, millions of them went through the desert. Millions of them were exposed to the same uh, miracles and the same things from the living God that, that they were exposed to. What was different about Joshua and what was different about Caleb? Um, what was their secret? And where did they get the courage to stand up to, like, no kidding, real giants? I mean, guys, big, 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 scary guys. Where did they get that, that thing? Well, Joshua, famous, yes, he was a general, and yes, he took over the, the, uh, the, the land, and yes, he was a, a general that defeated the armies that were opposed to them in the promised land, but before that, he was, a, he was known to be someone who would not leave the tabernacle. He would not leave the presence of God. Moses would go in and come out. He had business to do. Joshua would stay there, and, and you had to pry him out of that place. He delighted in the presence of God. And so contrary to having all of his little pet gods and pet uh, idols, etc., Joshua had a, had a fixation on being uh, in God's presence constantly. And, and what about Caleb? In Numbers 14, 24, they talk about Caleb. They say, you know, my servant, Caleb, verse, verse 24, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land uh, which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. He had a different spirit. It doesn't go into the details like, like they do for Joshua, but, but, um, but that's 
clear enough to know that, that this, this rest is, is achieved by having a different spirit among us. Um, we're, we're not going to wake up suddenly able to swim at five miles an hour. We're not going to wake up someday and, and suddenly discover that we have courage. Um, at, least, at least I'm not. It, it's a lifestyle of obedience, devotion, a diet on his word. Um, we're a pilgrim people passing through a sinful world, and we have this great high priest. This is how chapter 4 ends. We have this, that Amy's going to talk about in chapter 5. We have this great high priest always representing us in God, uh, before God in heaven, ministering to our needs. Hey, Jake. Um, <laughs> um, Jesus was, was that Jake? No. No, no. <laughs> Sorry, thought I recognized that part. Um, uh, f- final thing is that Jesus was tempted, and Satan's Satan's um, three standpoints uh, for us. That again, Amy, I'm sure is going to get into next week, where we can be tempted: the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the sinful pride of life, is where um, is where we're going to be uh, encountering. Uh, the temptation to, to abandon the rest that God has for us and to go for the more controlled things. So, um, we have this destination promised to us. It's desirable beyond belief. Um, it, it's union with God. It's the bride of Christ. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, and we have little tastes here. We have little, little hors d'oeuvres here, a little, little taste of the promised land, a little taste of, of, the, of, of Eden. Um, which God ultimately wants to restore to us. And, 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 and it's, it's worship with God's people together. It's those little avenues where the heavens get pulled back a little bit and we have a little sense of the presence of the Lord. It's a window into the ultimate rest that God is talking about. Um, so the chapter ends, like I say, uh, uh, in high praise to the high priest Jesus. Uh, he's a perfect high priest because he's been tempted in all things like, like we have been but without sin. Um, he knows how to fight those battles. He knows the strategies um, that work. And so, um, uh, let me, we're, we're going to sing around some verses, but let me ask if there's any, any questions or any, uh, any uh, comments or, uh, or portions that you've studied that, that I've missed, because no kidding, I, I'm about this, this deep in this right now. <laughs> 